when I was a young gangling teenager, when I was a young gangling teenager, I was a saxophonist. And uh, I played saxophone in the band, and I was a, you know, geeky teen. I thought it was really cool that I played saxophone. No, I didn't think that was cool at all. And so, but I, I was a band kid. So I started off, uh, you know, music band, music band, pet band, marching band, concert band, concert band, pet band, marching band. And so I played a lot, and I practiced a lot. And my band director, Mr. Fisk, uh, kept telling me, Mark, that was my name is what he called me back then. Okay, so Mark, you, you need to try out for honors band. Mr. Fisk, I can't. I can't. I can't do that. I, I won't make all-state honors band. Are you kidding me? That's like the top band in the whole state. Like, you know, only 50 kids out of the whole state get into the all-state band. No, 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 no. I'll help you. I'll help you rehearse. I'll help you. I'll plan the pieces for you to do. Da, da, da. And he did. And, and we rehearsed and we practiced and practiced and rehearsed. And I sent in the tape and I made it to the second round. And I remember having to drive in with Mr. Fisk and Miss Tyler. Miss Tyler was the pianist that accompanied me. And on the way there, we had a flat tire. We were running late. And I remember being nervous as all get out, like shaking nervous. And I went in and did my little solo thing and then went out. And I was like, thank goodness, that's over. And then a week later, he calls me into his office. He's got the paper. Hey, Mark, guess what? You made All-State Honors Band. I was like, he was right. I didn't, I see her off, I thought I couldn't. When I was in seminary, at Asbury Theological Seminary, there was, uh, I, I, I loved writing about dead Methodists. <laughs> Not the kind you think about. The kind, like, from the Revolutionary War, all those Methodists are now dead, Okay. Revolutionary War, get your money. Okay, so dead Methodists, and, and so I wrote, I loved what, you know, because I was always fascinated by Methodists in the Revolutionary War, because there are all these amazing things, like they got tarred and feathered, their pastors, I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff happened to the Methodists during the Revolutionary War, so I was, I was totally geeked out on all that, and I wrote about it, and wrote about it, wrote about it, did a paper, and Dr. Kinghorn was like, Mark, he called me Mark too, Mark, you need to send this, there's this um, history writing competition, for students in graduate schools all across the country, you need to enter that. This paper is good enough. Like, Dr. King, Dr. Kinghorn, I can't. I can't do that. I'm not going to win that. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm just this student from Asbury. You know the other schools that would have graduate students that submitted papers? It's like Notre Dame, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, you know. <laughs> big schools with brainiac people and so he kept pushing me and he helped me work on the paper and we sent it in and and i was like see he told you and a couple of weeks later he called me into his office this is again back when you know you had, there, there wasn't email or texting so you you got notified by letter when things like this happened <laughs> okay so he had this letter mark guess what you won the competition dr king was right i was wrong i thought you know and so the same thing happened in my mid-30s. And when I was 34, 34, 35 years old, I kept, I had a burden. I had a burden that I felt like, man, church, church has got to do something significant. Church has got to do something strategic to reach the next generation. We are hemorrhaging our kids. We got to do something. Somebody's got to do something. Help, help, help. You know, push the panic button. And I just felt this huge burden. And I, for a year, I felt like I was supposed to start a church, supposed to start a church. And the same two words kept coming up in my mind over and over again. I can't, I can't, I can't start a church. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to, I never went to church planning school. I don't have a certificate in church starting. 
you know, I can't, can't do that. And I remember having conversations with a guy by the name of Charles Lake, who was mentoring me at the time. And Charles started a church that started 18 other churches. And I'd be like, Charles, I can't. And he would, Max, you can. And I'd take another little step, another step. And look, here you all are. It's crazy. It's weird how this stuff works. Some of you have made New Year's resolutions. You have. It's 2014. I'm going to tame the bulge. It's 2014. We are going to get out of debt. It's 2014. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to, you know, you got all these things. And I know what's going to happen. In your brain, in your brain, two words are going to pop up. I can't. <laughs> you won't sound as whiny as my brain sounds because your brain is <clears throat> stronger. But those two words are going to play in your brain. They are. And for some of you, those two words come up in your brain because they were put in there by your parents and other people. When you were a young kid, you're going to try out for the football team. You can't do that. You'll never, you know. And your dad, your mom spoke, you can't, over you. Your siblings, you'll never. What are you thinking? You can't do that, you know. And so it got shoved in there, and now as an adult, it just comes out. I can't. I can't. Now, for some of you, it's simply one of those computer repeating loop things. You've said it so many times, I can't, I can't, that you just, you know, it's, you believe it. it you're, you're like, well, yeah, I can't, because it, you know, that's what's playing up here. Here's how this plays out in, in, in life. And in, in, for men in America, for men, it's the big fear of, I'll never amount to anything. Men, this is a big issue that men take through their 20s, 30s on, you know, who am I? Will I amount to something? And it's the I can't. You'll never amount to anything. And for women, it's uh, those two words, I can't, translate into you'll never be loved. No one will ever want you. And, and boom, you're like, thanks, Max. Yep, but I can't. I can't. Those two words can take you to some very dark places. But those two words aren't the whole story. To do that, I, uh, to get you into the whole story and see the big picture, I want you to start with me in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And that's the first passage we're going to be in today. 1 Samuel chapter 16. How many of you have heard of the story of David and Goliath? How many of you have heard in this room? I'm hands, hands. How many of you have heard of the story of David and Goliath? Okay, everyone. You can put your hands down. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Jew. Everybody has heard of this story. This story is part of what got Malcolm Gladwell to uh, come back to Christianity. He's kind of come out of the closet. And he's like, yep, I'm a Christian again. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, all because of impossible things happening. You can read about it in his book, David and Goliath, aptly titled. Um, but David was this gangling teenager this young man, and he fought Goliath. And Goliath was a giant. giant. Oh, see, you have heard of this story. How many stones did it take David to fell Goliath? One. One stone, one act of courage, and it changed the entire battle. What you may not know is I can't is part of David's story and part of his upbringing. And I want you to see that in something that happened before David faced off Goliath. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, who was a prophet, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him 
as king of Israel. Okay? So a little background here. After 400 years of slavery, the Israelites were free. That was the movie Prince of Egypt. Then, after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they got to the promised land. You saw that in the Veggie Tales. Then, God made this real simple setup. Real simple setup. God said to the Israelites, here's how this is going to work. When I tell you to do something, do it. Okay? Just practice with me. When I tell you to do something, you are to do it. Okay, great. It's a great contract. Um, only problem is the people had a hard time trusting God. And so they wanted a king instead. So God picked a king and made Saul king. But Saul had a hard time trusting God and had a hard time doing what God told him to do. So God decided to select another king. And that's what's going on in this passage. Okay? 1 Samuel 16. So the Lord said to Samuel, You've mourned long enough for Saul. I rejected him as king of Israel. Fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, said Samuel. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice too. So off he goes to Bethlehem and, he's, and he knows, I'm going to anoint the next king. And he's got his king-looking eyes wide open and he's discerning and he's looking around okay so that's verse six when they arrived samuel took one look at eliab and thought surely this is the lord's anointed but the lord said to samuel don't judge by his appearance or height for i have rejected him the lord doesn't see things the way you see them people judge by outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart so Samuel takes one look at Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse. That's it. Whew, got that figured out. Got this wrapped up. Here we go. Flask. No. Okay. So then get, get, uh, it go, he goes through the sons. Jesse told, uh, Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah, but Samuel said, Neither is this one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all, of seven, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. And all seven, no, 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 no. Uh, then, then Samuel said, Are these all the sons you have? <laughs> okay. Anybody else? <laughs> I'm getting a big no on the discernment factor thing here. Do you have anybody else? And wouldn't you know it, there was. There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Here's what I want you to see in this passage that isn't as obvious. The prophet of the Lord has come to town to do something important. And you bring in the important people, the people who got good future ahead of them, the people who have potential, the movers and the shakers, the leaders. And he brings his sons, and he, the town elders are there, 
And who is not there? David. In the eyes of his father, in the eyes of the town leaders, he's not someone who is either old enough, wise enough, mature enough, has enough going for him that he should be invited to this important thing. He's overlooked out in the fields. Uh, so uh, Samuel says, send for him at once. We will not sit down. And this is huge. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him, verse 12. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And Samuel returned to Ramah. We don't see things the way God does. It's why you have the expression, don't judge a book by its cover. Okay? We often don't see things the way God sees things. And Samuel came in there, sized up the situation, and picked Eliab. And it wasn't him. And it wasn't any of the sons who were brought to this important gathering. David was overlooked. I have to wonder if on the battlefield of Elah that takes place in chapter 17, when David is there and gathers his stones, if in his head he was hearing those two words, I can't. I can't do this. Are you kidding me? This is the champion of the Philistines. Saul hasn't gone out to the battlefield. Jonathan hasn't gone out to the battlefield. All of my older brothers who are stout, you know, etc., the whole nine yards, they're all hiding in their tents. Every day he comes down to time. Who am I that I would challenge? In David's speech, we get a, a sense for what's really going on because in David's speech in chapter 17, he's talking about the Lord and the, the Lord, the, uh, who defies the armies of the living God. David knows he can't, but God can and that's the other part of the story. Those two words, I can't, flavor another event at another mountain, only this is in Matthew 17. So if you, you brought a real Bible, you can flip to Matthew 17, or you can access version and, and get there probably quicker than I can in my paper Bible. Oh, I'm there. <laughs> okay, Matthew 17. All right? And we're going to be, uh, let's see, verses uh, 9 and following. Or wait, yeah. No, 14, verse, uh, chapter 17, verses 14 and following. So Jesus is on this mountain. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. And on the mountain, Moses and Elijah appear and have a conversation with Jesus. And, and Peter and the other disciples that are there at the top, there's only three of them at the top, they're like, whoa, this is like amazing. You know, let's stay here for a while. This is awesome and scary all at once, okay? So Moses and Elijah leave. Jesus and Peter and, and the, the other two disciples, they come down the mountain. And as they come down the mountain, they encounter all the other disciples in a brouhaha. And that's verse, uh, what did I say, 14 and following. At the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly, often falls into the fire or into the water. So he brought him, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Hey, Jesus, my son 
needs help. I brought him to your disciples. They can't. They can't. Jesus says, very strong stuff. You faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? Sounds kind of angry, doesn't he? <laughs> how long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. You know, it's the Darth Vader voice right there. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and the boy, and it left him. And from that moment, the boy was well. Of course, afterwards, the disciples who can't come to Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And then the kicker, you don't have enough faith. Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, if you had a faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. There's a lot of things going on in this passage. Some of them is this reliance that, uh, on self that can happen when you represent God, right? Um, the disciples had been out, sent out to towns. They were healing they got it down to almost a formula, right? We walk in. Oh, you're lame. Here we go. Kapow! Here's the Jesus kick. You can walk. Ho! So the guy brings his, you know, demon-possessed son. The disciples, oh, yeah, here we go. Which one of you wants to take this? Oh, I got it. I got it. Here, you ready? You know, here we go. Kapow! Wait a minute. Let's try that again. Kapooey! Kazam! This isn't working. Crud! You know, and they angrily are waiting for Jesus to come down. No wonder he's angry. Um, it's an issue of faith. It's an issue, and faith is the ability to see things the way God sees things. That's how it's pre presented in, in 1 Samuel, and that's how it plays out here in Matthew. Faith is the ability to see things the way God sees things. It's the willingness to trust God with everything, including the outcome. Okay? So let me ask a question as we start off the new year. What if I can't? What if you can't statements that play in your head are only half true? What if it's I can't, but God can? What if that's the real issue, the real deal part of the story? I think those two words, I can't, take people, especially men, to very bad spots in life. Men that I know that live under the burden of I can't, some of them are posers. You know, they've got the the biker gear, the whole nine yards, and they're Mr. Macho, but on the inside, it's doubt, doubt, doubt. I can't, I can't, I can't. Some men uh, are prone to violence, and because they're so mad, because they believe they can't, they take it out on anyone around them who's weak, if it's a wife, if it's children, whoever, um, and it comes out violently. Some men uh, take that I can't, and then they, it's like, you know, I can't, I'll show you I can't, and, you know, boom, they work like no tomorrow, and they busy themselves to become the best or the vice president or the president or whatever it is, the, the, the trophy, so that they can say to the world, see what, what it is on the inside? That's not true. I can't, I can't, I tell you. And then some men, uh, because that is in there and they labor under it, it they become just past, just, well, I can't, can't do anything anyway. And they'll play the life away on a video game console. So there are a lot of ways that this plays out, but I don't want you in 2014 to allow those two words to have the final say. I want you to allow God to have the final say. There's this moment where Jesus is in the garden, and he, and he prays this prayer, and he says, let this cup pass from me. You know what he's saying in that moment? Hey, Dad, I can't. I can't do this. I can't go through with this. I can't. I, I can't. It's an I can't statement. 
And God's response, I'm convinced, is one of, hey, you're in me, I'm in you, I'm with you, I'm for you, we can do this. And that's how I want you to, you know, we've been talking about God as Father. I think that one scene in the garden is a tremendous father-son scene. And I, and I want you to hear a father's bent toward that. I know this is an earthly dad. who's I'm, an, I'm a wicked earthly dad. I am. Trust me. Ask my wife and kids sometimes, okay? It comes out. It's in there. But even I, as a wicked earthly dad, I know that stance with my kids. My kids say, I can't, I can't do this, I can't. I have nothing but belief. Yes, you can. We can do this. Yes. We'll knock this out. God has that attitude. If you'll, if you'll be in him and allow him to be in you, the way Jesus talks about, 2014 is going to be awesome. I'm telling you. Not because you may get everything you want, but because you'll be able to do things you never thought were possible. To do that, I want you to peer into the life of somebody I know personally, and I'm going to put his picture up here. His name is Dick Woodward. This is Pastor Dick Woodward. This is um, his wife, Jenny. You can't see in the picture, but he's on one of these little... Um, what do they call those wheelchairs? You know, they have the little joystick controller. The Dr. Hawking's wheelchair. That's all I know. Okay. So, Pastor Dick was the pastor of the church that Jenny grew up in, back in, in Williamsburg, Virginia. Little green-eyed man from the Tidewater area of Virginia. In 1980, he was diagnosed with a degenerative nerve disorder. At first, it robbed him of his ability to walk. And so, when I met Jenny and dated Jenny, when we first got married, he was in this little, you know, he had the joystick thing. He didn't do that, though. That would have been annoying. But he, you know, all around in his little, his little motorized wheelchair, Pastor Dick. They built a special altar in the first building that they ever built that had, you could get up on a ramp and through a door, and they had a greeting, their greeting time in their church every Sunday. They still have a greeting time today, but the reason they started one in the middle was so that he could get positioned behind a cut-down pulpit, you know, <laughs> so for the sermon. It was the get Pastor Dick in, 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 you know, ready behind the pulpit greeting time. So go to, go to the next picture. This is Pastor Dick today. He's, uh, he literally, since night. This nerve disorder has robbed him of the ability to move anything other than his mouth and head. So he lies in bed. They have this giant crane that they have to use to kind of get him out and move him around and turn him in the whole nine yards. And he, you know, he's completely helpless. He's at the mercy of everyone and anyone. Um, and he can't... Uh, at first, he could do, uh, in the 80s and early 90s, he could preach every other Sunday, and then it became once a month, and then it became special occasions, and then it became never. And then he became pastor emeritus. Because just physically, he can't do it. Uh, he did a course for years called the Mini Bible College. Today, that mini Bible college is in 26 different languages. I don't know how many different countries use it as a way to train pastors because there are no seminaries close by. And so they go through the mini Bible college as a training tool for pastors. Um, and today, there's a waiting list. There are people who clamor 
just to have regular hang time to, with Pastor Dick. He's, he's that close to Jesus. <laughs> you know, and you go with, you, you sit in his presence, his love for God and people, his I can attitude is just, you're like, I'm sorry, you are confined to bed. You can't do anything. What is this attitude I see in you? What? Where does that come from? Well, all through his life, he's had something he calls four spiritual secrets. And I want to share, with you, uh, share them with you as we start off the new year. And this is a Pastor Dickism from bygone era, okay? So four spiritual secrets. And the first, first one is this. I can't, but he can. And I am in him, and he is in me. So in 2014, I want you to remember something. You already know the first part because it plays in your brain all the time. I can't, I can't, I can't. But you need to remember the second part. But he can. And I am in him, and he is in me. And the second spiritual secret. I am not. But he is, and I am in him, and he is in me. Third spiritual secret, I don't want to. You ever feel that way? Come on, yes you do. <laughs> I don't want to, but he wants to, and I am in him, and he is in me. And fourth spiritual secret, I didn't. When it's all said and done, and the amazing thing has happened, I didn't, but he did, because I am in him, and he is in me. Jesus put it this way. Um, I tell you the truth, if you had the faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this very mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. I know you can't, but God can. I want you to let him in 2014. 